from Luke 13. Luke 13, 18 through 35. I'll be reading from the ESV. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went, his, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first and some who are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Tom. <clears throat> I'm going to embarrass Tom now. They say, you know, ask forgiveness, not permission. But, you know, you, in my job, you see a lot of young knucklehead pastors going off into the ditch, and it can be discouraging. And then, you know, I remember a guy like Tom and Joanne who just faithful for many years. Very important. All right. You, see, you receive many invitations in life. You know, even this year, I'm sure you'll get wedding invitations birthday party invitations, if much to Mallory's dismay, I get many invitations to join more subscriptions. Um, lots of things to say yes or no to. And I hope that, uh, you know, short of some kind of can, you know, family conflict, that you feel rather sanguine about times where you need to say no because of scheduling conflicts. And I just wonder, you know, invitations, you know, varying degrees of importance, but nothing to be too worked up about. Well, today we come to a much different kind of invitation. It comes from the Lord Jesus himself, and it's an invitation into his kingdom. You see, I think it actually comes right there in verse 24. Enter through 
the narrow door. That's the invitation into the kingdom of God. You know, if you ask the question, I think it's a very, very good thing to think about. Of all the sermons that Jesus gives, he's got a, there's a leitmotif. The, the most common theme that he preaches about is the kingdom of God that that really permeates all that he's thinking about. You say, well, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where Jesus is king. And so if you're a surrendered Christian, a surrendered follower of Jesus, you're in a strange tension in this world now, right? You're, you're, it's both now and not yet. So if you're a Christian, Jesus is king now. I follow King Jesus. I'm a member of his kingdom. And while I'm here, I'm out doing uh, the work that he wants me to do. I'm, I'm serving King Jesus now, and yet there, there's, a, there's a not yet component of when Jesus will return and consummate his kingdom, when all things will be put right under him. So those of us who are Christ followers, we are in the kingdom now, but anticipate the full consummation of this kingdom. And while we're here, there's this invitation that more might come to join those who are his. And that's the thread. If you notice, both the parables from verses 18 to 21 talk about the kingdom of God, and it, it is featured once again in verse 28, the kingdom of God. And so the way, as I thought about setting up this uh, sermon on um, the challenging text, I just want to make five very broad strokes that the passage teaches about. So five big ideas. You can check them with me. Here we go. The kingdom of God is closely approximated to those who are saved. Depending on your own church background, you hear that jargon a lot, say, well, are you, are you saved? Um, you, you know, and, and it raises the question, right? Because the man asks, verse 23, uh, are those who are saved few? And Jesus goes on to talk about what? He talks about the kingdom of God. So when we talk about salvation, there's being saved into the great kingdom of God and what he's doing under King Jesus. But it raises yet another question too crucial. Saved from what? So this man on the street, when he says, Lord Jesus, who's going to be saved? You, you, you need to say, well, what, what exactly does he mean? Does he mean saved from the Romans? Am I to be saved from bad politicians? Am I to be saved from any kind of inconvenience or hardship in life? Am I going to be saved, uh, you know, a temporal death? So there's lots of things we could say about what it might mean for a person to save or be saved, but what we know is from the preponderance of evidence of, of God's working through history, the answer to that question is we all need saved from the just judgment of God. That that is what we call the wrath of God. And you hear, we hear that and we bristle at one level because it's a hard word, but all, all that means, we just sang holy, holy, holy. Say if that's the defining characteristic of who God is, and we do an honest personal inventory, say, I fall short of the holiness of God, and when that judgment comes, as we've been reading about in Luke chapter 13, that I'm on the wrong side of God's saving economy, and I need to be saved. No amount of what I can do can kind of make up for who I really am, that I need Jesus' help. So that's what he's talking about, that there is a salvation, there's, there's a, a, a way of being saved from the just judgment of God. And when we're saved, we're brought into the kingdom of God to serve King Jesus here and now until he returns right when all of his people are together. So point one, the kingdom of God closely approximated to what we talk about when a person is saved. Secondly, and again, Tom prayed, these are hard things to think about for many of us. There is a door to the kingdom 
that will not be open forever. You say, look at the language of verse 24, the narrow door. Again, in 25, the door shuts. Those are on the outside knocking on the door. There is a door to the kingdom, and one day, the door's gonna close. There are not many doors. There's not, hey, just roll, you know, roll on it. There's one door. Who controls the door? Jesus controls the door. There aren't multiple doormen. There's one door and one doorman, and the door will one day be shut. Thirdly, that God's kingdom will include all the great believers from all ages past and those of us who believe in Jesus now. Can you see verse 28, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are at the banquet. It's a way of saying all the faithful Jews, all those who came to God by faith, they trusted in what the sacrificial system was about. The sacrificial system was just about what I was just taught, the holiness of God and the fallenness of humans. And those people who'd come by faith giving those sacrifices would recognize their own moral bankruptcy and trust in the graciousness of God. Those who came to God on his terms, which is by faith, they will be in the great kingdom, as will all those who believe in Jesus. It's a wonderful thought. You say, well, what, you know, what, I ever get to meet Moses. Yeah, if you're a Christian, you'll be together with all the people of God in that great eschatological kingdom to come. Fourthly, that believers will come from all over the globe, that we try very hard. Last week, David Nelson, Crossing Culturals International. This week, Pastor Vitaly from Ukraine. That if we just say, well, here we're so fixated on Avon, say that that's not right, that, that God is calling his people, the elect from every corner of the globe. Once again, you see, the people will come from east and west and from north and south, from all over God's world, right? Even here today, we have people from different backgrounds and coming to Jesus, praise God. And so while we read a lot about the decline of true faith in the west, which is by now an old story, you know, places like France, Scotland, England, East Coast of America, increasingly Midwest America, say, oh my goodness, you know, John, you know got fewer and fewer followers of Jesus. Say, no, actually, while the gate or the door is narrow, you get the impression that, that there's gonna be a lot of people, but they're gonna come from all over the globe. I smile last month when we were in Turkey, there were 29 countries represented and at one point, we sang, uh, How Great Is Our God? You know that little, that little chorus. And they said, well, anybody, let's get as many different languages up on the platform as possible. We're all going to sing it at the same time. And the guy kind of jokingly who was leading that says, I, we're doing this so heaven doesn't come as quite a shock. Uh, that it was all these languages singing, How Great Is the True God? So that's the idea from all, east and west and north and south. Come, follow the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, you'll see, well, what's it going to be like? Is there any analogy of what it's going to be like when Christ consummates his kingdom? And we get the image of the great eschatological banquet, right? The reclining at a table. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very, it's not, you know, d disembodiment or, or, or boring, but rather a, a time of great festivity. And don't worry, you introverts. I picture, you know, I love the banquet. I'm going to go around and meet people with introverts, maybe a little side room, you think, just your <laughs> closest friends. But there's going to be a great banquet with King Jesus. There's a kingdom. So once again, the kingdom of God is closely associated with what we mean by being saved. That we all need saved from the just judgment of God and we can be saved by receiving 
that is really surrendering to Jesus Christ. That there's only one way into the kingdom, a door. That Jesus controls the door, and the door will one day be closed. That all the people of God, the Old Testament believers, those of us here who believe in Jesus, will all be together with all the saints from all over the globe in a great time of festivity and joy and fulfillment. So that's God's big, big salvation scheme. Now from here, in these passages, we'll just make two, two big points and then talk about our own heart attitude. But how about the parables in verses 18 to 21? You've got the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And once again, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. These two, they're similar. That's the reason they're, they're, you can stack them up against each other. But it says that God, the way God grows his kingdom is through unassuming and unimpressive means. So think of a mustard seed. Had you never, uh, you know, you had no experience of this, you, you know, just came in, you, you know, and you put out your palm and somebody said, we gave you a little tiny mustard seed, there it is. You say, well, what you got to, you, you put that in the ground and it's going to grow up into this big thing and birds can sit in it. You'd say, I, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. You got to be kidding me. This is not going to happen. So it's exactly what happens. You know, somebody say, here's an amorphous lump of, water and flour, and somebody says, well, you just, believe it or not, you take a little bit of yeast, and that is going to rise into something you can eat. Say, how is that connected? Say, we both know those are true. And God would say here, through Jesus, that the way the people of God grow and have influence is through small, unassuming things that by God's power become, become something special. Why is this so crucial for us. So much of the way that we have, you talk about a secular liturgy, uh, business models, is growth now through human manipulation. It's not a bad thing. I'm sure in a lot of your areas where a lot of us work, say that's a very good thing. How can we use our minds and do the right things and meet people's needs and grow this thing quickly? Say it's not a bad, it's actually a very good idea in business, but when it comes to the church, that you run uh, the risk of artificial growth and human inserting ourselves into the system, instead of what God says, actually there's a slow, deliberate faithfulness to how God grows. And what this means is it requires us to be patient. Now, I happen to love early church history. It is my great hobby. Uh, anyone else? No? Okay. Um, you maybe never read an early church history book. If I had one to recommend, say just the title. You just need to know the title. It's a great book. Kreider's The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And what he shows right through uh, where they were at culturally a subculture, a definite subculture, that the early church members were patient. They waited. And what's fermentation? Fermentation is that process by which you don't really control. Uh, the, the fermentation in the title is about what God does, that we're faithful and patient. We put on exhibition what it means to be followers of King Jesus. And as we faithfully honor him in our patience and as a subculture, God does extraordinary things. Look at the history of our faith. You say, we get anesthetized to this, but unknown Galilean carpenter with no credentials. 
put to death on a cross as a malefactor. First preachers are women and fishermen in a dominant society that really didn't like them, tried to stomp them out. It's exactly, Jesus didn't, when he said this, you know, say that hadn't been true yet. It's exactly what happened. And maybe you feel that way now. Say, oh man, the cultural tie's really against us. What, how can I ever persuade anybody to follow Jesus? Wait a second here. Patient ferment of the church. We're patient. We honor Jesus. We love one another. We live out the virtues. Say, God will bubble up. He'll do the work. The mustard seed and the leaven. So God grows his, his kingdom gradually through unassuming small things. Our job is to trust him, be patient. You get the idea. Now, secondly, the narrow door, verse 22 to 30. This is hard-hitting, so bear with me. A man comes to ask Jesus, I think, a very important question. Verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? How many get into the banquet? Now, Jesus, if you'll notice the way he responds, he gives an answer, but not the answer maybe the chap wanted, right? He think he wanted a number. You say, how many? A lot? All? Most? Not that many? Am I in? Jesus gives a hard-hitting answer, and it's basically, and this is very in line with how he says, well, well maybe instead of worrying about how many of the others are getting in, you look down into your heart. Where are you before God? It's the same kind of answer that he would say, look at all that sin out there. Look at all these great sinners. Time out. What about the sin down in here? So you see all the specks of sawdust out there, but what about the plank in your own eye? So what he's saying to them, I said, actually, there's a time. Think about the narrow door and your own soul. It's a serious response. And here's where we get the uh, language of the door. Strive to enter through the narrow, narrow door. Why is the door narrow? It's very countercultural. What's the, the door is wide. It's not even a door. You don't think about it. Um, there's lots of doormen. Say, there's a narrow door. And I think, why Jesus said, why is it a narrow door? Because you don't naturally go through this door. That we come into the world not saying, you know, Jesus, I need you. I need your help. I, I'm... I'm a guilty sinner, say, no, we're, we're dead to that. We, we look out for ourselves. We've inherited from Adam in our catechism. We've inherited from Adam a selfishness that we see even in small children that I'm more inclined to love myself than to ever think about God or think about Jesus. And so I don't naturally stumble. It's a narrow way that comes about, a countercultural way that comes about through the supernatural working of Jesus in our hearts. Now, sobering two Two other groups here. I know this is hard. Jesus controls the door of the kingdom. The door will one day be shut, and there are some who at that point want to get in because it's going to be too late. Verse 25, the door is going to shut, and those who will be standing are on the outside. That it's not. It's the same thing he said earlier in this chapter. It's like some of us have, there's an infinite opportunity to, to negotiate with God, to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, I'm, I'm going to die, but not today. Uh, I'm, I'm not that worried about it. Say, there's going to be a time where it's, it's too late because Christ will come to consummate his kingdom. And he's put, forth, he's put forth all that we need to be saved. Sometimes I talk to friends 
you know, who you know, grew up in the church, they're at a Christian university, they don't believe a word of this, and, you know, and it's like, well, they put God in the dock for this. And, and I, I want to say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus now, what precisely is the data point that you need that you think one day is going to make you surrender to him? Uh, it, you know, he's, he's given us his word. He's given us the church, the, the spirit of God that is in the believers. You get in America, we got a church on every corner. He's put us in his world, in the natural world. He's given us bodies. And I feel like that great, how firm a foundation. What more can he say than to you he hath said? What, what more do we need to see what God has done in Jesus? Friends, I, I know this is hard, but if we just pivot a moment and you ask yourself, I, I am not saying this, Austin is not saying this, I, would, I could never say this, I'd be very arrogant, but I, I hope you see that as your open Bible here, you say, what if we had a pastor who never told us that there's a narrow day, gate that's going to shut one day? You should throw me out. Really? Because it's exactly what it says, there's a narrow door and it's not always going to be open. And there's a day when it's going to be too late. So what do I do, you're asking? What do I do? You come to God on his terms, which is through Jesus. I'm tired of doing life on my own. I see that I, given the opportunity, I make a mess of things. That I need help from, from the outside, and it comes forth in Jesus. Right? You say, well, but you want me to get up there. You say, well, I, I'm too late. Well, didn't your Bible have Luke 13? Jesus, I need you. I surrender to you. I want to be right with God. I want to serve you here and now in the kingdom in great anticipation of being in the banquet with all the saints. There'll be a day when the door is shut. What more can he say than to you he has said? Secondly, another group on that day has a superficial relationship with Jesus. You see what they say? Well, didn't, didn't we eat and drink with you? We listened to a few sermons. <laughs> This is verse 26. We ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. You know, this is the, wait a second here, time out. I came to church on Easter. I took a few proverbs and put them in my back pocket and just, you know, tried to live by them. It's a superficial idea because then you get the most terrifying words in the New Testament that Jesus says variations of this, but I'll tell you, I don't know you. You see, knowing is a tricky verb. Say, people ask us, do you know, Austin, do you know pastor so-and-so in the city? Say, well, yeah. We've had a few meals together. We sat by one another at a conference one time. See, knowing slides around like that. What does it mean? And what Jesus is saying, well, well, to know Jesus is to be surrendered to King Jesus and to be knowing him more and more and indeed allowing him to shape us more and more just like a normal healthy relationship but he being perfect son of God will shape us and mold us and we'll know him more and more and so we don't want to be those who say well yeah you know just thought I'd get in by doing the bare minute say no I really want to surrender to Jesus so friends I think here if you're a Christian Christ continually calls us to true discipleship to really following him. This isn't to create anxiety in the believers, but to say, I'm really thoughtful about what Jesus has done for me and what it means to follow him here and now. And by all means, if you're not a Christian, all that I'm asking is read the passage that we read together today. Think about it. Think about what Jesus is saying. And when the end comes, what is not an excuse is I didn't know that there was a door and I didn't know that it was narrow and I didn't know what I had to do. Because 
It says it here. All right. Finally, wind down with this. Some of us picture Jesus as, you know, on that door, and he slams it in our face, and he's mocking everybody who didn't make it, and he's just having a jolly, look at you, you know, there's, there's you over there, there's us in here, and he, he loves this prospect of people being outside. Look at verse 20, and the weeping of gnashing and teeth. You know, he he's, treats this with a certain degree of revelry. A lot of people think God, you know, gets, God gets no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We, we know from Isaiah. Look at Jesus' attitude. Verse 34. How often would I have gathered your children, that is the children of Jerusalem, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. A few chapters later, verse 19 Verse 41, Jesus sees Jerusalem, he draws near, and as he saw the city, he wept over it. Why is Jesus weeping over it? He's saying, come, come to me. And in a very rare metaphor, it's, it's a maternal metaphor. It's very, very rare, actually, right? Most of the time we think of, of, of God and Jesus were given masculine metaphor. Not, this is a maternal metaphor of a mother hen. Quite comforting. We all need this. We're embarrassed to talk about Psalm 90 to have that protection. Come and turn to me. Right now, the word's gone forth. Come to Jesus, and yet... In our stubbornness, we're unwilling because we love ourselves. So God calls, and Jesus wants us to come to turn to him to repent, to enter through the narrow gate to serve him now and to be in that great banquet. So church family, may we continue to strive towards true discipleship. May we model Jesus' attitude towards the lost, never being boastful or haughty or you know, anything prideful, but to say, may I model Jesus' attitude to say this is very serious and help us, Lord, in our unassuming and unattractive way as a small little church to try to win some for you to invite, to carry on this invitation to the great banquet because this is really the great uh, fulfilling of all history. So once again, God grows his kingdom gradually through unassuming means that the call is to true, true discipleship, not artificial discipleship, and Jesus' attitude is that all that come across our path, that they might be one for him, that they might serve him in spirit and in truth until he comes again and all his people are under his wings in a very real way and we join in that great day. I'll pray and invite the team back up. Lord, thank you for this passage as hard as it is to hear. And I, I thank you for how you work that it's not about what we do, but you've called us to faithfulness and that as we do that, you, you use us on your terms. And Lord, this matter of there being a door is so very countercultural, and we don't like to think about it. So help us to have the appropriate attitude for those of us who are Christ followers for it to be one of gratitude and one of motivation and one of concern and one of love and help us to model now what it's like to be to have you as our king that we would be a little embassy of heaven a little colony of christ followers and lord some here who aren't right with you or maybe they could identify with the superficial relationship yeah i, I listen to this sometimes i you know but but nothing very serious about all that jesus stuff i i pray that just that there would be an opening to see what's really said and Lord, that even today, that some, what better time than right now to become a true follower of Christ. 
So, Father, help us to model this. Help us to be a loving church family. Help uh, us to honor the name of King Jesus as we know he will come again and establish his kingdom. In his name we pray, amen.